Welcome back to We The Union. This is episode nine. This is our AAPI Heritage Month episode, and there's so much to learn. I learned a lot um, during the interview, and I hope that you all will learn a lot as well, and hopefully we can start to build a more inclusive labor movement. So I don't want to waste too much time during the intro, so let's get on to the interview. Okay, as you all know, um, May is AAPI Month, Asian Americans and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. So I am joined today um, with Emily, who is going to talk about, you know, kind of the history of the AAPI community and the labor movement. So let's first, let's start with you um, introducing yourself, please. Hi, my name is Emily. I am currently a graduate student in cinema and media studies at UCLA. Uh, prior to that, I worked as a uh, labor union communications staffer for the AFL-CIO, um, as well as uh, I worked a little bit as an organizer and organizer in training for public employee unions um, like AFSCME. Um, and I am currently working on research regarding uh, the unionization and worker activism in the entertainment, media, and tech industries. Oh, wow, you have a very long history in the labor movement. That's awesome. It's good to hear. Um, so let's just jump straight into it. Um, can you talk about some of the major contributions that the AAPI um, community has had with the labor movement and union, unions in general? Sure, and I think, you know, the important thing to remember when we talk about history is that history is really a, a living story. Um, the way that we understand it now uh, is not necessarily the way that we will always understand it. I like to think of history as a story that we tell about the past to help us understand where we are in the present so that we can shape the type of future that you know we want to organize and move towards so i just want to uh you know give the condition that i'm not a labor historian you know i'm happy to share um what i know and what i've learned throughout my my time as a, a member of the asian pacific american labor alliance as a person who worked in the labor movement um and as a person who still very much cares about um you know historical and ongoing uh movements for for worker rights um but I also understand that, you know, this is a short history. It's going to be a bit incomplete and honestly, uh, pretty California centric, just due to um, where where we are. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm recording out of the LA area, uh, so that's what I'm familiar with. Um, but I am, but I am, you know, conscious that there are gaps in this and this, you know, this this history that um, we we know and have today as far as um, the the work of Asian American and Pacific Islanders. In the labor movement, you know, it is skewed towards, uh, you know, East Asians. There needs to be more work lifting up the the work of Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders in, uh, in terms of the the broader U.S. labor movement. Um, but at the same time, I do want to give the the time and um, and commemorate, you know, the work that so many activists and historians um, and other labor activists have um, worked really hard to lift up and to bring out of bring out of the shadows so with that said um the the story of uh you know asian americans and uh pacific islanders in the u.s context it is 
pretty much, uh, you know, it, it's a labor history. Um, you know, the a lot of the motivations for why people, you know, ended up in the US if, if they immigrated um, or how their relationship to the the government and, and, and state of the US is their work relationships, their labor relationships. So, you know, if we have to pick a place to start, we can talk about, um, you know, 1849, the year of the California gold rush, um, where you have the wave of immigrants from, from China who are, um, uh, you know, coming attracted by the opportunities that, you know, are being promoted to them, um, the idea of the US as, as gold mountain. And then once you have this group of people uh, you know, in, in, in the country, I um, mean, we, we're, I think folks are, are familiar by now with um, the project of the Transcontinental Railroad and the, the major role that, that Chinese workers played um, in building that, uh, you know, the Transcontinental Railroad is, you know, considered one of the most significant engineering feats of the 19th century, linking um, the East Coast and the West Coast of the US. Uh, and, and Chinese workers where, you know, thousands of Chinese workers were, were part of this project and were often put into the most dangerous, most precarious jobs uh, because they're, you know, they, they weren't considered, you know, to be as the same status as, uh, you know, white railroad workers. And they actually did strike um, to, to improve their conditions. 3,000 Chinese railroad workers uh, struck to, um, in what was, you know, what is the first recorded strike involving Asian American workers. Um, so, so that's a, a significant moment for um, where, you know, the Asian community in the U.S. and, uh, you know, labor issues and workers issues are, are you know, intersecting. Um, and then from there, you, you have to talk about the anti-immigrant sentiment that comes along um, in uh, you know, just uh, you know, a, a, a couple of years after this, in 1882, um, we have the Chinese Exclusion Act, which for the first time in U.S. history bars a group based on their race and national origin. Um, and something that you know might be new information for for folks, but definitely impacts the way that um, you know Asian immigrants and, and folks who are you know even uh, second generation or you know several generations, they're you know. Uh, their families have been here. Um, if they if they come from uh, you know Asian Asian origin or Asian Asian countries, um, ra these racially discriminatory immigration laws lasted from 1882 to the 1960s. So that's over 80 years of restrictive um, immigration and all of the social and cultural discrimination that um, comes with those types of of U.S. government policies. Um, so that's, I think that's an important piece of, you know, even if it's considered to be part of, uh, you know, Asian uh, immigrant history, you know, that also impacts how communities are formed, what types of jobs communities can take on. Uh, so that's a, a major piece of, I think, Asian American labor history as well. Um, and then something that uh, I think it's also important to to, to recognize and for us in this current moment to, to try to understand and work through better. Um, you, know, you know, Hawaii has a long and proud labor history. 
Um, and the way that this gets talked about is often about the union organizing that was led by um, Asian workers and uh, you know, Hawaiian workers in, in the sugar plantations in Hawaii. Um, you know, it's, it's often talked about as this moment where multiracial coalitions are coming together to organize um, for, for their labor rights. Um, you know, Hawaii has one of the highest rates of union density even to today. So there's obviously a long and proud labor history there. Um, and many of the unions in Hawaii have historically been led by um, API leaders. But at the same time, I think there's uh, a larger conversation happening now about um, well, what does that mean <laughs> that we have, uh, you know, East Asian or um, folks who are considered Asian Americans leading uh, as leaders in Hawaii when there's still Native Hawaiians there. So um, talking about um, decolonizing and, and, and talking about sort of colonialism and then looking at that uh, within our own communities as well, I think is a conversation that's coming up. But it is important to, to note a lot of the inter-ethnic organizing that was happening um, in Hawaii at the time and uh, still continues, especially since Hawaii is one of the, the most densely unionized states in, in the US um, today. And then when we, you know, when we get into um, the early 1900s, um, another example of uh, interracial labor organizing across uh, ethnic communities is the Oxnard Sugar Beet Strike in 1903. Um, this was launched by the Japanese Mexican Labor Association. Um, so they they struck, they won wages, wage increases, um, but when they applied for a charter with the American Federation of Labor, they were denied um, unless they agreed to exclude Japanese workers from the unions. So this is another important part of labor history that I think um, the, the broadly movement, uh, you know, it, it's, is compelled to address is this history of anti-Asian exclusion, not just as a policy of the US government, but as a policy of the mainstream US labor movement itself. Um, you know, Sam, Samuel Gompers, who is the first president of the AFL, AFL, was a lifelong opponent of Asian immigration and refused to allow Asians to join unions. So anti-Asian sentiment is also baked into um, the way that the labor movement built up itself. So that's, I think that's another important kind of historical legacy that is worth thinking about, you know, how does that impact the labor movement today? Um, in 1924, you know, the second large wave of immigrants from Asia came from Japan. They're considered the Issei or first generation Japanese Americans who worked in agriculture as low wage workers. So doing farm, farm work. Um, and again, uh, in 1924, a new immigration act barred uh, more Japanese from immigrating like the Chinese before. So we're seeing a pattern of, you know, bringing workers in to do these hard labor, low status, low pay work, and then um, cutting them off, you know, from, from building real communities inside of the US by, um, by, it, by enacting uh, discriminatory immigration laws. So that's another theme that we'll see in, in terms of this um, API labor history. Um, and then in, in 1935, you have a, another uh, wave of immigrants um, you know, coming into the US 
uh, due to US colonization of the Philippines. Um, so this is after the, you know, the, the Spanish, Spanish US war. Um, you know, this is interesting because it's a, it's a, a, a colonial relationship. Um, and so Asian exclusion laws did not apply to Filipinos because they were considered American nationals, kind of like uh, the situation with Puerto Rico today. Um, so, so there was you know, exchange back and forth, but at the same time, because um, you know, the, the US government and um, you know, largely white patriarchal power structures that were um, you know, determining these laws and, 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 and these relationships, you know, they didn't see Filipinos as, as Americans as like equal to, to people who could come in and when, you know, freely travel and, um, you know, and build, you know, build real lives, be, be really a part of the American dream. Um, so in, uh, in 1935, the Tidings McDuffie Act passed, which granted the Philippines, um, quote unquote, independence, but uh, in effect excluded more Filipino immigration um, to the U.S. because they were now considered, you know, they were not, they were no longer um, American uh, nationals and, you know, they were Asian again uh, mm -hmm. under U.S. law. So, so blocking their, their, their immigration. Um, and then, you know, this is a pattern, I think, with, you know, talking about um, colonization in the Philippines, and then you have, um, you know, the U.S. wars in Asia from, you know, the the World War II, 19, you know, from 1942 when um, President Roosevelt signs Executive Order 9066, the forced removal of Japanese Americans from the West Coast. Um, you have the 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 war in Korea, the U.S. war in Korea, um, which ends in 1953, and you. We see a, a new wave of immigrants and refugees coming into the U.S. Uh, from Korea as a result of that that uh, conflict, um, and then, you know, this this uh, pattern of U.S. Um, involvement, conflict, war, interference in Asia is really driving a lot of this um, movement. Of, of Asian immigrants um, into the U.S. into work situations that are uh, difficult, difficult jobs, um, service sector jobs, low-paying jobs, um, and so that's all part of the the history of um, Asian American Pacific Islander uh, work in the U.S. Um, kind of skipping ahead into the 1960s, uh, we have the the 1965 Immigration Act, which repeals um, a lot of these racist immigration policies that excluded li large scale migration from Asia over the generations. Uh, and this is really a direct result of the civil rights movement, uh, you know, led by um, Black Americans who were met with widespread violence and mass arrests at the hands of law enforcement. Um, and really, Asian uh, Americans are a huge beneficiary of the civil rights movement because the challenges against Jim Crow and legal sanction discrimination um, helped to dismantle a lot of these uh, exclusionary and racist immigration policies. 
Um, so, so there is, you know, this, and this is not the first time where uh, the activism, activism of Black Americans is um, directly related to the expansion of opportunities and, um, and uh, you know, and, and civil rights for uh, Asian American Pacific Islanders. So the exponential growth of the Asian um, American Pacific Islander community from East Asia, Southeast Asia, and South Asia is a direct consequence of the, the change in immigration law in 1965. Um, and so this is definitely a, a watershed year where um, we see more immigration happening. Um, and 1965 is also the year that Filipino farm workers launched the Delano grape strike in California. Um, you know, they were the first to go out on strike uh, uh, against, um, you know, against the, the farm industry and, and corporations that, um, you know, farm work is hard labor, just like mm -hmm. a lot of the, the work that, um, Asian uh, immigrants for were doing up until this time, um, and uh, I think they were out for out on strike for a week, and then uh, the leaders of the you know grape strike, uh, you know um, Philip Veracruz, Larry Itliong, Pete Blasco, um, Cesar Chavez approached them, um, you know, and and the United Farm Workers of America is a result of the the merging of two union organizations, of, of two labor organizations, one that was mainly Filipino workers and then one that was mainly Mexican-American workers. So again, we're seeing this um, inter-ethnic solidarity and organizing that is key to the story of um, Asian American Pacific Islander labor in the US. Um, and then I, I think, you know, it's also important to, to note that Asia is a big country. Uh, oh, no, it's, no, let me say that again. Asia is a big continent. Yes. It's a big continent. Um, and we've seen already that the U.S. has varied relationships with the different countries in Asia, ranging from, um, you know, economic, political, colonial, imperial, uh, different wars. Um, and so those all will shape uh, what the relationship or, or what the conditions of those different Asian and Pacific Islanders communities are when they get to the US, um, where they, when they immigrate or when they you know, are forced into the country due to um, you know, deteriorating conditions in, in, in their homelands. Um, so I so just wanted to mark that in the 70s, we see a large wave of, of immigrants and refugees from Southeast Asia due to a lot of the, the US wars over in Vietnam and, and other Southeast Asian countries and, and how that um, creates a political situation that, uh, you know, the, the US by, by beginning and, and uh, by, by participating in this conflict and, and fighting the wars over in Southeast Asia, you know, drives another wave of immigrants and refugees um, into, into this country, uh, into the US. And um, this is where, when you start to see uh, immigrant and refugee communities popping up in places you don't expect because it wasn't like um, the U.S. government was like, oh, it, it would make sense to send people here, here, or there. It was just like well, we will bring them over to, you know, to Oklahoma, to to where <laughs> wherever in Louisiana, to you know the middle of the country where there's no existing community or infrastructure, um, and so that that begins to shape um, the laboring community conditions for. Uh, a lot of uh, these folks who now have to try to set roots and, and find jobs in these communities that are not necessarily prepared to 
you know, the to to, to take in a large refugee uh, population. Um, and then I think just coming ahead to to the 1990s, I do want to note that on, on May 1st, 1992, um, we see the founding convention of the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance. Um, so 500 uh, Asian American Pacific Islander workers gathered in Washington, D.C. to found the first uh, constituency group of the AFL-CIO that is focused on um, you know, recognizing and uh, lifting up the voices of API workers. Um, and again, this, the ability of uh, Apollo to form is, is due to the fact that um, uh, Black and Latinx workers had, fill, had, had formed their own constituency groups, you know, organized to, to have their communities recognized by the AFL-CIO. Um, and so we were really building off of um, they're organizing in their victories and, and have a lot to um, not not just to to learn from, but to really you know respect that it was the fact that they broke that that ground that we were able to 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 get Apollo formed back then. Um, and then I think you know looking at where we've come from there, um, there's definitely a lot of um, I, I want to say it's it's been almost 30 years since Apollo formed. So we were formed in 1992. It's it's 2021 now. So um, in 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 2022, that will be the 30th anniversary. Um, and so much has happened, even <laughs> in that short, short uh, three decades. Um, you know, I, I I think I started out in the in like in the eight near the 18, 1850s with this timeline. Um, <laughs> And there's just so much that you know gets kind of left left out, or 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 um, you know talked over, or or um, you know not gone into depth when you're trying to do a, a history that's that long. Right. Um, so for the everything that's happened since 1992, with when the Paula formed, um, you know, I think I just want to say that. Um, I can get more into that when I talk about Apollo, but we're we're coming out with a, a book of, of interviews with um, Apollo leaders who who were there from the beginning, who are, you know, our our new generation of young leaders. Um, and there's just so many stories that um, are, are, are worth uh, getting into and following there, um, because as of, you know, as of 2021, as of today, you know, Asian Asian American Pacific Islanders are the fastest growing ethnic group in the U.S. Um, when you look at it proportionally, uh, proportionately, um, there are 18 million APIs in the U.S. Um, 70 percent are immigrants, and uh, uh, which is actually a higher percentage of of immigrants in within the community than even the Latinx population. So that definitely um, is shaping our uh, you know, our, la our current labor history and current dynamics in inside of our communities. And Asian American Pacific Islander workers are found in every occupation, every state in the country, but um, we're mostly concentrated in urban areas and industries like healthcare, um, government work, education, hospitality, uh, the food industry, and, and in service sector jobs, especially within um, Asian ethnic communities. So I think, you know, I 
that's uh, I feel like a lot. Um, there are a lot of ways we can we can go and go from there, but uh, that's probably like the five fifty thousand foot overview of things. Where um, you know I definitely recognize that there are pieces that have been left out, but um, to even be able to to tell you this this history, I think is um, really uh, something worth recognizing and celebrating because it like I mentioned it, it took um, it took folks a long time to get you know even this short selection of dates recognized and and and, and thought of as our our labor history yeah absolutely and you you've given us a great starting point right so people can go and they can look up everything in between right and get you know an even more um, a bigger idea of the AAPI community and the labor movement so you know, my next question for you, what made you want to get involved in labor? Like, you know a lot about the labor movement, <clears throat> excuse me, the labor movement and the AAPI community. So what, how did you, you know, get started in all of this? So my start, I think, with labor um, uh, and, and unions um, goes back to, I'm originally uh, I originally grew up in Las Vegas, like I would consider that my hometown or the closest thing that, you know, I, I would have for, for a hometown. Um, and Las Vegas is um, a very union dense city inside of a, a right to work state. So that's already an interesting dynamic there. Um, but honestly, I think I first became aware of, of unions and the fact that workers could organize for um, you know, to, to improve their working conditions when my mom's hospital um, started to form a union when I was in high school. Um, and, and even then I didn't really, uh, you know, I wasn't going to the, to the union meetings with her or anything <laughs> like that, but, you know, she would go off uh, to those meetings, to, to the organizing meetings. And, um, you know, I'd hear bits and pieces of, of her talking with her coworkers about about the campaign. So that was something that began to put it put put the labor movement on my radar. Um, and then I think the the other piece that really made me aware that, um, you know, employers <laughs> will will ring workers out for <laughs> all the work that they can do and not um, give back what workers are worth in return was um, I worked uh at a um how do you call it like a a cafeteria service for like a major sports venue so one of those contract um mm -hmm. one of those like food service contractors um where you know they had to hire like thousands of people really quickly and try to feed all the the tens of thousands of people who are coming through this stadium and it was really just like it didn't matter how good of a worker you were or when you came on like there was no loyalty from the employer to the worker um and so work and and so issues like workers who who weren't getting the correct pay on their paycheck or who who had to miss a shift because of family emergencies like none of that was taken seriously from the employers and 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 you know if 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 the worker didn't like it I mean, they they could just 
quit or, or be fired or go away. Um, like there was nothing compelling the employer to, to have any type of account accountability to um, all these people who are making sure this giant, um, like massive system of, of food service was, 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 was uh, you know, operating every single day, um, except they, these workers were all part of a union. Um, like they, they, they got a union card um, in, as part of their orientation, although it was not explained to them uh, what, what this really was about. It was just like, here's a union card and you just sign it. Um, so what I noticed is like, even though, um, you know, there, there was so much turnover, um, the people who came back to the employer with, hey, I'm a union member and you can't treat me like this. Those were the folks who actually got to get their problems resolved or, or stay on uh, stay on for, for the rest of the season. And that kind of, you know, that, that ticked in my brain, like, oh, so there's something to this being a union member that, uh, you know, gives you a voice when it seems like all the cards are stacked up against you. And then, um, and then I actually ended up attending a, an Apollo convention, which was held in Las Vegas, um, almost, I want to say, uh, Maybe, oh gosh, I think it was 2009, so 11 years ago. I, I, yeah, <laughs> I don't know, no, that's over 11 years ago, um, 12 years, I think, which is pretty wild to me. Um, and that's how I formally like, you know, really sat down and was like, okay, this is what the labor movement is. This is, um, you know, how, you can get a job in the labor movement. These are campaigns that uh, working people have run to um, to to win back uh, to win back wages, to win health care, to to win a pay increase after so many years of um, of, of low pay. Uh, and so it was that was really eye opening. Was was coming back to to Las Vegas and and being part of that convention. And then from there, um, I got. Uh, recruited into an organizer and training program, and then, 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 yeah, you can circle back to my my introduction from from that point. Wow. So, you know, being a member of Apollo, what has that been like for you? What has that experience been like? And just talk a little bit about the organization. Sure. So for me, Apollo is my home inside of the labor movement. Uh, like I mentioned, it was really my first formal entry into um, organized labor as we know it in, in the U.S. And, um, you know, kind of hitting back on, on what I mentioned within the, the history conversation, um, you know, there is a history of Asian exclusion and anti-immigrant sentiment that is part of the labor movement's history. So you, Apollo was really a group where, you know, we could talk about that and how, how are we you know, not settling for this being the status quo. How can we push the larger labor movement to be um, more inclusive of not just API workers, but immigrant workers, um, you know, immigrant worker leaders, you know, how do we push the labor movement to, to actually live up to its promise of representing all working people in, in the, you know, in, in the US and as well as recognizing that um, workers in other countries are are not our enemies, you know, <laughs> we have, you know, pushing that an agenda of global solidarity. Um, 
against uh, you know exploitation that has been driven by um, you know imperialism, capitalism, colonialism, um, and so it was really it was really great to have a community inside of the labor movement where we could recognize these contradictions, talk about it, and organize and mobilize um, to shape the labor movement um, that we wanted to to see and be part of. And I think even today I mentioned that um, I'm a graduate student right now, not you know officially working in any type of union union role, but um, I mean I, I do have a, a a union as a graduate student. I'm I'm a member of the UAW 2865, um, so I have that that tied to the labor movement. But also through Apollo, I'm able to still stay connected to um, union and organizing that's happening within um, the community where we are. Yeah, that's awesome. That's great to hear. And um, yeah, I'm glad that we we definitely need more organizations like Apollo so that we can have these communities within the labor movement really, you know, push, push us forward, right? Keep us moving forward. And so that kind of brings me to my next question, because, you know, you mentioned it in the history uh, part of the interview, and you just briefly kind of touched on a little bit about um, the labor movement, you know, excluding certain groups, right? Having a history of that. So how do we, you know, include these groups into the labor movement? How can we be more inclusive of the AAPI community and other communities alike? Definitely. And um, I think something that really resonated with me when I was working on the, uh, the book for for the Apollo 30th anniversary, I got to interview a lot of um, Apollo labor leaders who, like I said, have been active since 1992 and um, and 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 throughout the whole 30-year history of Apollo. And one of the interviews that really stuck with me was um, one that uh, I did with Joanna Hester, who is um, uh, in the AFSCME executive board and is also. Um, the assistant executive director for Ask Me Local 3930 um, uh, United Domestic Workers, as well as uh, an international vice president for 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 AFSCME. Um, in her interview, we talked about, you know, how as an organizer, she helped to to build a local union that really um, recognized the leadership of the workers that they were representing, um, which as you know, for domestic workers, that's largely going to be women, um, women of color, Black, Latinx, Asian American, uh, Asian Pacific Islander. Um, and so how do you, uh, you know, be mindful of these are the workers and their leaders should be coming from those um, communities as well. And so I think it is a matter of looking at the communities that need to be represented um, and recognizing their own leadership and recognizing that, you know, if we want the labor movement to win, um, there's really no better people you could be putting in charge um, than women of color, immigrant women. People have really had to fight for every single opportunity, um, you know, uh, who had to do go through incredible hardships just to get into the United States um, and who have had to fight every single day on the job for respect, for dignity, 
um, you know, these are uh, women and leaders who had nothing handed to them. So they, they know how to fight, they know how to win. And it's just a matter, I think, of, of recognizing that and, and feeling, uh, you know, you know, the being able to be like, yes, I see you as a leader and you're going to lead and I'm going to follow um, versus, you know, trying to, to shape and mold people, um, uh, leaders from, from these types of communities into, uh, you know, what we typically think of already as, as labor movement leaders. So um, I think for, for the broader labor movement, it is about opening um, their imaginations to, um, you know, things don't have to always be like how it was in the 1950s. I know that's when <laughs> we had the largest um, share of the, you know, the labor movement had like, what, like 30 something percent of, of all American workers were in unions at that time. But I don't want the labor movement to look like how it did in the 1950s. <laughs> like, uh, so let's not do what we were doing then. Let's let's look at what where we are in this present moment, and in these like these immigrant communities, these um, women of color-led communities that have they have the expertise already. So it's it's just about honestly, um, folks stepping back and, and letting them lead. Right. Um, so you mentioned the Apollo book. Is there any like publication date for that or anything yet? Yes, so the Apollo book will be available through the UCLA Labor Centers, um, I believe starting in July or August. It's coming out soon. It'll be coming out over the summer. Okay. Um, so it's not out yet, but it'll be out in time for the Apollo um, uh, Biennial Convention, which is happening in August around um, August 5th to August 8th. Oh, awesome. It's perfect timing. So, okay. Thank you for joining me. I hope everybody, you can learn something from this. I definitely learned something from this, things that I did not know. Um, and I'll definitely be on the lookout for that book. So you all should be on the lookout as well. Um, so thank you, Emily, for joining me and for educating me and all the listeners on the AAPI community and the labor movement. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for all the work you're doing um, on this outlet. Thank you so much for joining me for We the Union, episode nine. I hope you enjoyed that great interview and learned a lot. Um, I appreciate Emily for coming on and teaching us because I some of that stuff I did not know about. So I'm so happy that I was able to learn some new things and hopefully we can all move towards a more inclusive labor movement because that is what we are about, right? So thank you once again. Thank you for tuning in and I will see you all next time.